What a beautiful time of worshiping together. Well, I've been praying for my voice. It hasn't really gotten a lot better, so hopefully your ears are turned on a little louder today. My voice is a little softer. This past week, you may have heard that our family had the joy of welcoming Danny and Faith's firstborn son, Ronan, into the world, and our first grandchild as well, and so we're just filled with joy that God continues to work his grace even in difficult times. I do believe that God is the master craftsman of every single life that's brought into this world. You may have thought of that if you're a parent, looked at this child that was born and placed into your arms and realized you didn't design this child. For people not to see that there must be a creator from that It takes an amazing amount of faith to turn that evidence down. God himself, the Bible says, is life. And so all life of necessity comes from him. No birth is ever an accident. Some people say, well, this one was an accident. But no birth from God's perspective is an accident. Every life fits into an overall plan. Not your plan or my plan but God's plan. I believe this wondrous truth is vividly illustrated in the passage of scripture we're coming to this Christmas Sunday, one which opens the entire New Testament. So if you haven't already, would you please open to Matthew 1 and verse 1, very beginning of the New Testament, and consider the Lord's messages embedded in all places in a genealogy. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. I'll stumble through all the names here. We'll read it together. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. <coughs> Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of 
Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Matthew is the gospel, more than the other three, that stresses that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Matthew, his entire gospel was written to convince the Jews that Jesus really was the Messiah. His birth, his life, his death, and as it goes on to chronicle, his resurrection prove he is the chosen ruler of the nation of Israel. The structure of his entire gospel is centered around the theme of the Jewish king. Jesus' first public words recorded in Matthew are, repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. He presented himself as the king. The opening chapters, chapters one through four, describe what we might call the preparation of the king for his public ministry. The very first thing Matthew writes in the preparation of the king is his genealogy that we just read. It may seem strange to us as modern readers to open to the very first page of the New Testament. It hardly starts with some blockbuster story, does it? We just find a list of hard-to-pronounce names. But as you can see, the New Testament does begin this way. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What a strange way to begin a story. And that's because it's not beginning a story. It's continuing a story. The New Testament is not a story without a context. It is the continuation of what the Old Testament told us about God and the coming Messiah. Jesus' birth and life continue a lengthy Old Testament history. Everything about Jesus, including his birth, it's all connected to the Old Covenant and beyond that, to the old times. Times that predicted there would be one who would come into this world. Times that predicted that this one would reign. He would save, but he would also rule. He would be both a savior and he would be a king. So if you had the Jewish mindset and you were steeped in ancient scripture, a genealogy was a perfect place to begin an account of someone who was supposed to fulfill all of this. To the Jews, a genealogy was crucial. (coughs) Without genealogical proof, Christ presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah king would be invalid. He would be considered an imposter. Matthew, who's writing to the Jews, had to establish from the beginning that Jesus had the legal right to sit on the throne of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 made that very clear. God promised King David in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What an amazing thing for a king to be told. I mean, how many kings have their king and their throne last forever? None. So this genealogy proves 
Christ's royal heritage. It is no coincidence that the very first name Jesus is associated with is, look at it, whose? David's. David's. Please notice it doesn't say Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. It doesn't say Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph. It says Jesus, the son of David. Today we're going to contemplate some of the Christmas themes that come in this genealogy that are embedded in here. First, (coughs) that Christmas was choreographed by God. Second, that Christmas was promised by God. And then third, that Christmas produced a God-given king. If you were to go back to verses one and two, as we read this litany of names here and think about Christmas being choreographed by God, the first truth that becomes very obvious is that God was the one in control of all of history. This is written after all the history has happened, right? All that history happened so it would all fall into place so that we could read it now, so that Jesus would be born from after every single one of these lives that happened. It was all divinely orchestrated. It was all choreographed from above. What goes on down here on this planet, speaking phenomenologically, all that happens here is controlled by what happens above. And indeed, we see that in this genealogy. Through numerous generations, amidst all those earthly human decisions, which resulted in marriages. You know how much a a man will debate about who he wants to marry or the father debates about who's gonna be presented. All of the calculations that went on there and it resulted in marriages and then certain children being born at a certain time, all the events in their lives to cause them to meet this person or to meet that person, God superintended all of it. God moved all of it in one direction, the direction of bringing about the birth of the king of the Jews. Considering the thousands of circumstantial factors that were involved, the plethora of human decisions, I can only imagine, each leading to a whole host of new contingencies and consequences, for God to bring all of that together into one precise plan and doing it while fulfilling prophecies that he made through the mouths of other prophets, well, it's truly mind-boggling. Beloved, the first Christmas was no accident. Paul picks up on that in Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of the time came, notice, when the times filled up, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This genealogy informs us that nothing, not even the free will of man or human decisions can ever thwart or slow down or misdirect God's declared will. Generations came, generations went, but God intricately handcrafted human history to cause the birth of this royal son. We use genealogies today, obviously, for more curiosity. We go get our DNA taken, and we find out we have X percentage Native American or Chinese or whatever it is, and then we go boast and brag about that. I think I'm 2% Jewish or something like that. I thought that was very cool. But the Jews have a very high regard for genealogies. They needed genealogies. They understood the importance of family heritage. Many of their laws required they knew their family ancestry. The Levites and the priests had to establish their direct connection back to Levi, according to Ezra chapter 2 and verse 61. The various tribes 
needed their genealogical records to show their land locations. Where would their tribal boundaries be, for example? Numbers 26. The story of Ruth tells us about the transfer of property that depended on these records being kept accurately. A genealogy supplied a Jew with his or her identity and social standing. That's why you find quite a number of genealogies in the Bible. The longest genealogy you find in all the Bible is in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 9, verse 44. That's nine long chapters of all of this genealogy. Please notice here in verse 1, it calls this part of Matthew's gospel the book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word genealogy in verse 1 is the word genesis. You can hear, we get our word what? Genesis from that. What does it mean? It means a beginning or it means an origin. The term here does not refer merely to the lists in the genealogy, but to the entire story of the beginning of Jesus, including the genealogy. When you go back and read how this term is used in Genesis 6-9 and in Genesis 10-1, you can see that it includes the transference of the line, but it also includes the stories that happened during that time as well. So Matthew is saying, this is the historical account of the beginning of Jesus Christ. And what, is, what I think is striking about this genealogy is that usually genealogies would take their name from the progenitor of the list, the first father. But here Matthew gives the name of the genealogy to the last person on the list, to the son, to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's greater than all of the fathers who come before him. Please notice Jesus is immediately identified with the names David and Abraham. Do you see that? These two men represent two great covenants that God made with his people. And you know what a covenant is. It's a binding promise, right? David was promised the everlasting kingdom everlasting kingdom through physical descendants. One of his physical blood descendants would always, always be on his throne to the very end of the age. Abraham was promised the land. He was promised countless descendants like the stars. He was promised spiritual blessing that would go out through his family to all the ends of the earth as we benefit from that as Gentiles. Jesus is the son of of both of these great men of God. By the way, you need to understand that the phrase the son of or was born of does not necessarily refer to the immediate father. You could say you were born of your grandfather or born of your great-grandfather or many, many generations before that. Hebrew genealogies often would skip generations because the intent of it was mostly to show lineage, not to reveal every single link in the genealogy. In fact, Matthew lays out this genealogy to prove Jesus' Davidic lineage. Notice the particular structure that Matthew uses, and I find this very interesting. There are three distinct periods of God's dealing with Israel, each era having 14 generations. The first period is verses 2 through 6. That's all the time leading up to the establishment of David's monarchy, all the time before that, from Abraham on up. And then the second period is verses 6 through 11. That's the actual duration of David's monarchy. That came to an abrupt end when David's monarchy fell to the Babylonian Empire 
centuries after David's life. The third period, verses 12 through 16, is the time without a monarchy, where Israel existed enslaved or dominated by other countries, but still where God's promise was waiting to be completely fulfilled. It leads up to the arrival of the one greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Matthew neatly divides each of these three eras into 14 generations, skipping over some names to show the symmetry of God's dealing with the Davidic kingdom, probably also as a way to aid memorization. That was something that was regularly done with genealogies because they were memorized for the sake of preserving them. One question that is raised about these genealogies, this genealogy here, concerns the third section. It only has 13 names in it rather than 14. But you can notice that when Matthew makes a claim, he claims he's not counting 14 names but 14 generations. And given how Matthew arranges the material concerning the deportation to Babylon in verses 11 and 12, it seems that he counts that section twice because the exile to Babylon occurred right in the middle of that generation. In other words, the deportation to Babylon as the dividing element demands that Jeconiah's name be used on both sides of that event. Now, there are numerous indications of God's sovereign control of history that are presented here. Consider the sovereignty of God by the narrow selections that God made throughout history. Look back to verse 2. Verse 2 says to Abraham was born who? Isaac. But wait a minute. Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. And actually after Sarah died, he married Keturah and had more sons including Midian. This was not Abraham's only son. But God told Abraham in Genesis 17 that Ishmael would not inherit the promises. The promises would belong to Isaac alone because Isaac alone was the child of promise. Verse two also tells us that to Isaac was born Jacob. But wait a minute. Isaac also had another twin son, Esau. But God made a choice. The older one will serve the younger one, he said. In Romans 9, 11, it tells us this was done in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand. Not based on anything that the boys did or were going to do. God simply chose Jacob over Esau. Then verse two says, to Jacob, Judah and his brothers were born, 12 brothers in all. But the line of the coming Messiah went only through Judah, the fourth born. Judah was told in Genesis 49.10, the ruling scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. God made another choice. And the line became more and more and more narrow. Most were excluded from being part of Messiah's heritage. And this pattern repeats itself. Verse three, to Judah were born two sons, Perez and Zerah, but the line of Christ went only through Perez. And then it went only through Hezron, then Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, all the way down to Boaz, then to Obed, then to Jesse. Jesse had eight fine sons. All were inspected by God through the prophet Samuel. Only one was chosen to be king. The last, the youngest, 
the shepherd boy, David, that rascal out in the fields, he was chosen to be the king. This divine selection process occurs all the way down the line, telling us an undeniable story that you shouldn't lose among all those complicated names. God's choice stands. God is the one who orders the events in human life. Think of the many, often intimate, decisions that would lead to the birth of each of these sons in this line. All of these factors were not just anticipated by God. God's not a chess player. He doesn't sit there and say, ah, because you move there, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move here. He has the whole game planned from beginning to end. God was controlling even the most intimate and private human decisions between a man and his wife to bring about exactly what he had planned. That's amazing, isn't it? You say, can God read my mind? Well, now you know. God's control of his universe down to minute biological details going on inside the womb of a mother, down to the most intimate thoughts in a human mind. It's not just mind-blowing, it's jaw-dropping. We say hallelujah to God because we understand he never relinquishes control of his universe. Listen, no human decision is a mere human decision. It is a true decision. This is a mystery we cannot explain. But it is also God's will being worked out. The most free of all human beings would be a king. Would you agree? He gets to do whatever he wants to in his day. Every once in a while when you're at work and you're being told what to do, you probably dream, I wish I was a king. I could boss all these people around. The the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he wants to. But the king is making his decision, true enough, but God's turning that decision exactly where he wants it. That's Proverbs 21.1. Do you remember a guy named Pharaoh in the Old Testament? Exodus 9.16. Do you know what God told Pharaoh when Pharaoh said, I don't know who this, this Lord of the Hebrews is? God told Pharaoh through Moses, I raised you up, Pharaoh, and I hardened your heart so that I might pour my judgments on you and your land so that my name, not your name, would resound throughout all of the earth. The scriptures teach that God has sovereignty over every aspect of life. Nothing, nothing is outside the direct control of God. Whenever you get, watch one of those movies and they wonder whether or not people are free or whether it's fate, now you know God's in control. It's not fate, it's God. Even Pharaoh's evil choices, even Pharaoh's blasphemy against God was under the control of God. God never performs evil, but even evil by humans and fallen angels is part of God's eternal, unchanging plan. Joseph told his brothers in Egypt when they had sold him into slavery and he had lived in terrible conditions in Genesis 50, 20. Many of you have this memorized. But Joseph said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it, the same thing. God meant it, that action that you took. He meant it for what? For good. God allowed the evil. How could he do that? How could he be a good God and allow that? Oh my goodness. God allowed the evil to bring about a greater good. He saved the entire Hebrew clan and 
kept his promise to Abraham by their preservation of life through an evil decision made by the other 11. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And again, Isaiah 46.11, God declares, truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. That's something none of us can say. I have a lot of plans I can't do. All the time, I sit around thinking like, we're gonna do this. Wouldn't it be great if we traveled here? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we got this for the living room? All the plans you have, I can't make them all happen. You can't make them all happen. God does. In Job 1.20, Satan was only allowed to do to Job what God said, you have my permission to go and do. Evil is not outside the Almighty's control and direction. History is not controlled by human decisions. It's not controlled by a political party. It's not controlled by the victor in war. It's not controlled by luck or mother nature or karma or demons or bland, blind chance nor any other force. Our sovereign, unchanging God brings all things to pass, including Christmas, Amen. the birth of his son into this world. And that leads us to our second theme from this genealogy, and that is Christmas was promised by God. What we read here fulfills centuries, nay, millennia of waiting. You think you have to wait a long time for some good things to come into your life. Thousands of years, the world waited for a savior. It was declared in the Garden of Eden that a seed would come forth from the woman, the first woman. This seed of yours will crush the head of the serpent. No other details were given because Eve wouldn't have understood that at that time. The savior was prefigured by a boat called Noah's Ark. Noah and his family were saved about 1,500 years later from a worldwide flood. Then the promise of a child came through whom all of the nations would be spiritually blessed and that promise came to Abraham. And then 1,000 years beyond Abraham, there was a man named David. He became king in Israel. He ruled on a throne he brought righteousness to his kingdom and he was told his son would bring everlasting righteousness to all kingdoms. Isaiah the prophet, 300 years after David wrote in Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then it ends with this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You can't stop it. Nobody in this world can stop the second coming of Jesus, no one in the world at that time could stop the first coming of Jesus. We're on the winning side, beloved. It's just a joyful thing. Micah 5.2, as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, 
from the days of eternity. A little hint at the deity of this child. Finally, hundreds of years beyond, the Christ finally arrived. We sing, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, right? Trumpet the message. God may seem sometimes to have forgotten the world, but it's not true. God keeps his promises. Oh, faith sometimes wrestles with that, does it not? But in the end, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Romans 3.3. 3. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, God remains what? Faithful. Why? Why? He cannot deny himself. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The faithfulness of God, people, is written all over this genealogy. He brought us the Savior. He promised that Savior long ago. And yet the message of his faithfulness runs deep in this genealogy. Consider those that were included in this genealogy for a minute. This is the line of the Holy Messiah. This is the line of the Holy One of Israel coming to visit his people, who would become human flesh, who would live among us. This is who we're writing, he was writing about. Surely God would choose the most holy, the most righteous, the most capable people to put in the background and the heritage of this most important of all children, wouldn't he? Not at all. God in his sovereign grace often chose the faithless to fulfill his faithfulness. Pause and consider the shady characters in this list a minute. Just look down from David in verses 6 to 11, where it says Israel was deported. Do you know what that means? They were kicked off the promised land by God. Why? They worshiped all the other gods rather than God. And God let it happen, and he let it happen, and then he had enough. And he ripped them off, first by Assyria with the northern tribes, then by Babylon with the, the southern tribes. Yet, look at more of the background here. We go to David. David's a great man. David was a man after God's heart. But don't forget, David was also an adulterer. Have you committed adultery? God can forgive that. David was a murderer. He sent Bathsheba's husband to the front lines and pulled the soldiers back on purpose to have him die in battle to cover up his adultery. David did that. God forgave him. God still worked in his life. If you've had hatred and anger, bitterness, maybe you have killed someone. God's forgiveness and grace is even greater. And then there was Solomon the wise. We wonder why he's called Solomon the wise. He had too many wives. (laughs) That's what the Bible says. 1 Kings 11.4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. But God was faithful to Solomon, even though Solomon was not faithful to God. And then to Solomon was born Rehoboam in verse 7. What a character this man was. Rehoboam wanted to show how tough he was. He said, you thought my father worked you hard? He gathered all the young advisors around him and said, I'll show you how tough I am as a king. 
And all he ended up doing was splitting the kingdom. He broke the kingdom in half because he was a fool. And on it goes. None of these changed God's word. There were good kings. Eh, there were more bad kings. Some were miserable kings. None of them were perfect kings. Second Kings 21.1 says of Manasseh, he was 12 years old when he became king and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, you 12-year-olds out there, there's a lot of evil in your heart, even at 12, right? He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. And yet here is his name in the Messiah's line. And then there's Ammon. If you read him, he was as bad or worse than his father. The faithfulness of God is also captured in the inclusion of five women in this genealogy. Did you see them? Women were not usually included in genealogies. But God worked in amazing ways through the lives of these women. Three of these women weren't even Jews. They were Gentiles. Tamar, in verse 3, was a Canaanite. Rahab, in verse 5, was a Canaanite from the city of Jericho. And Ruth, verse 5, also, was a Moabitess. That's surprising in a Jewish genealogy for a Jewish king. Three of them were involved in pretty gross immorality. Tamar laid secretly with her father-in-law, Judah, resulting in Perez, who, by the way, is in the line of Christ. Rahab was a paid harlot in the city of Jericho. She is an ancestor of Boaz in the line of Christ. And Bathsheba, in verse 6, committed adultery with David. She mothered Solomon. Listen, Jesus identifies with sinners. He came to save sinners. It is he who will save his people from their sins, the angel said. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you are lost, if you don't know Christ, you can come to him. His arms are open. His patience is great. The time is now. Don't delay. By delaying, you make it harder for your soul to come. Come now. Jesus forgives sinners when they ask humbly. Sinners are in his very heritage. The faithfulness the faithlessness, I should say, of men and women never nullifies the faithfulness of God to his own promises. The third theme here, which of course is maybe the most Christmas theme of all, is that Christmas produced a God-given king. Christmas produced a God-given king. In John eighteen thirty-seven, Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus replied, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Without a doubt, Christ's claim to the throne of David is stressed from verses 1 through 16. Many of those in the list were themselves kings in the line of David. In a sense, the genealogy speaks for itself. However, many have raised objections to this whole genealogy and its legitimacy, saying that Matthew contrived it because they wanted to see Jesus as a king. They say it contradicts the other genealogy of Jesus' background in Luke chapter 3. But it does not contradict that genealogy. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage through David's son, Solomon, 
who was king. Matthew is concerned with establishing Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David. Luke, on the other hand, traces Jesus' heritage from David through another son, Nathan, who was not king, but was David's biological son nonetheless, through, by the way, the same wife, Bathsheba, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 5. Remember, these genealogical names are not presented in isolation. Both Luke and Matthew connect them to the historical accounts, the written history of the birth of Jesus. In fact, right after Matthew finishes giving his genealogy, he immediately tells the account of the virgin birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective that we read in our scripture reading today. Luke does exactly the same thing earlier, though, in his book in chapter 1, and he tells it from Mary's experience. And he gives quite a bit of detail about the virgin birth of Christ that only Mary would know. The point of the narratives connected to the genealogies is that Jesus was no ordinary human with an ordinary genealogy. Given the fact that Mary was Jesus' biological mother and Joseph was not his biological father, nor do the scriptures ever call Joseph Jesus' father, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would not have a basic run-of-the-mill kind of a genealogy. I mean, how do you accurately give a genealogy of a virgin-born son from the father's side? Who would be listed as Jesus' human father? That's why Matthew gives Joseph's real genealogy to show that Jesus had, listen, the legal claim to the throne through Solomon. The legal rights to the throne could only come through the father, not the mother. This works because even though Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, by law, Joseph was Jesus' legal father because Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit when Joseph and Mary were together and betrothed and thus legally married. In fact, he said, don't be afraid to take her. She will be yours. Betrothal, beloved, is not an engagement. It's an actual marriage. It's a legal marriage in Judaism. This granted Jesus royal rights to David's throne through Joseph. Luke, however, did not need to repeat that genealogy. In his gospel, he gives us much more information about Mary and is focused on Mary's side of the story. Luke gives Mary's biological genealogy because even though a woman's genealogy was never given, in this case, it had to be given because only through Mary could it be proven that Jesus was a blood-related person to King David, a blood descendant of King David. People who criticize these genealogies and Jesus' kingship aren't looking at the whole picture and putting it together. They're also not being careful with the details in the genealogies. For instance, back in Matthew chapter 1, and verse 17, it does not say that Jesus was begotten of Joseph. Did you see that? But Matthew changes the terminology very sharply and writes in verse 17, by whom was born Jesus? The whom 
cannot refer to Joseph because in Greek it is feminine, so it must mean Mary. All the others in the list say born of and then has the name of the father. Not so with Joseph to Jesus. Joseph was simply the husband of Mary who was the biological mother. There's also an important detail in Luke. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 23, it does not have Mary's name in it. Instead, it says, was supposedly, Jesus was supposedly the son of Joseph. Supposedly, how interesting. People thought of him as Joseph's son, but he really wasn't. So in that list, the next man up in the list, Eli, would not be Joseph's father, but would be Mary's father. That would be Mary's uh, father and Jesus's grandfather. Dr. Robert Thomas in his Harmony of the Gospels points out that Joseph's name is the only one in the entire list given in the Gospel of Luke that does not have the article along with it. Little details like that matter. So Jesus had the legal rights to the throne through Joseph, and he was a true biological son of David through Mary and Eli, thus together qualifying him to sit on David's throne as the king of the Jews. Those details are fascinating. You put them together and you're like, I'm amazed that God produced this king. But there's one more complication I want to give to you. Dr. Thomas also points out that Luke included Mary's biological genealogy for another reason. According to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, if you look at it, one of Joseph's descendants, or back up the line from him, was a man named Jeconiah. Jeconiah, have you heard of him before? Probably not. God cursed Jeconiah in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. There he's called Keniah. And he told Jeconiah, no man of your descendants will ever sit on the throne of David. Now that's a huge problem. Because if Jesus were of the line from Jeconiah, he would not be allowed ever to sit on the throne. How was God going to fulfill his promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne if Jeconiah the royal representative of that line was now cursed. Answer, Jesus was not the biological son of Jeconiah through Joseph, for in Mary's line, listed in Luke, there is no Jeconiah. Had Jesus been the natural son of Joseph, he would, been, he would have been disqualified due to that curse. One last fact needs to be brought out. Matthew and Luke when they made these genealogies very carefully, guided by the Holy Spirit, had access to all the genealogical records of the Jews in their day in order to trace Jesus' royal heritage all the way back accurately to David. This is not a story that was made up. It was well-researched. But in 70 AD, an event happened in Israel. Just 40 years after Jesus died and rose again, the temple in Jerusalem where these records were kept was utterly destroyed by the Roman armies. That means that since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, no gene genealogical records exist that can trace the ancestry of any Jew living today back to David. Do you understand how significant that is? Dr. John MacArthur sums it up this way. Jesus Christ is the last 
verifiable claimant to the throne of David. That was on purpose. Jesus Christ is the king. That's not in some vague kind of way that we believe, oh yes, he reigns and we don't see him. He is the king. And he is reigning now in his seat at the right hand of God. The greatest place of honor in the universe is there for him so that he can come back to this world and visibly take the throne that is his, the throne of David, which now doesn't look like much. There's not much there in the little tiny nation of Israel, but God has predestined that nation and the king of that nation to rule over all the nations of the world. Why do you think it is that at his second coming, when he breaks the sky in the heavens, it says, written on his robe and written on his thigh, the name what? King of kings. Get out of his way. He comes to reign and to rule. And what does that mean for us in between the two comings of Christ? That means that we are heralds and we are ambassadors of a message. That message about Jesus should not sound like this. Gee, if you'd like to, come to a savior. There's one here for you if you would like to give him a try. That is not a proper representation of the king of kings. The message should sound more like this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. There's coming a king, and he's sending out his troops ahead of him, his ambassadors, so to say. And they're yelling, and they're calling forth, and they're giving you an opportunity to surrender before he gets there. He's saying, you know, I'm a benevolent king, but I will destroy when I come. Here's your opportunity. You're hearing of my great victory over death. You're hearing of my dying on the cross. You're hearing of my perfect life. I'm giving you the opportunity to get on your knees now and bow down and confess me as king. And then I will save you and I will deliver you and I will make you part of my army and part of my kingdom. But if you don't, if you don't surrender... Christ will cut you down and Christ will throw you away. Now do you understand the glad tidings of Christmas? How patiently he has waited for 2,000 years. Come, why do you delay? Why do you resist, O stubborn soul, from coming to God? Why would you not bow before the king that's gonna win anyways? Just common sense tells you, get on the winning side. And for those of us that are on the winning side, whatever our losses, whatever our disappointments, whatever our trials, tribulations, and ailments, we're on the winning side, beloved. And we rejoice in Christ because he is our king. We sing of Christ because he is our king, because he also is our savior. And we love him. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. Do it, do it now, do it soon. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son of God will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I hope and pray that you can rejoice exceedingly in eternal life that has been given to you and not have to face the wrath of God which presently is over you because you haven't yet surrendered to the King of Israel. May God grant you the grace to get past your pride to bow your heart, and to believe in Jesus Christ this very day. Father, thank you so much for this obscure, delicate, difficult portion of scripture that we may read through and find rather boring. We thank you because it 
proves Jesus' legal right to that throne and his, through Mary's genealogy, the biological connection to David as well. A physical descendant with legal rights to the throne, virgin born, God of God, man of man. Amazing that you would think of this plan. We pray that all of us would rejoice this Christmas in being those that follow the winning king, the the coming king, the king whose kingdom hasn't been fully seen and yet who's spreading now in a spiritual way through the church all over the world. We pray for our brethren who are rejoicing this Christmas all around the world, even the ones suffering in China and suffering in North Korea and suffering in Muslim lands that you protect them and watch over them and give them the endurance and the faith to wait for that day when he comes again. And we love you, we love you, Father, for this plan, and we love you, Lord Jesus, and we look forward to your coming. And all God's people said, amen.